the fact that this morning's message is on discipline, is, it's not necessarily a commentary on my childhood. Uh, I just wanted to get that out there. Um, it is Mother's Day, uh, and one of the things I try to do on Mother's Day all the time is to, to recognize those that uh, wanted to be mothers uh, but were unable to, uh, or those that have lost children. Um, and and uh, China does this really neat thing uh, that I never knew until we visited there last year called Women's Day, and just celebrate all the women. And uh, I think a similar thing I, I try to do in the church on Mother's Day is just celebrate all the, all the ladies, um, because, uh, in fact, you are our spiritual mothers in a lot of ways. And, and so, uh, just to, to point back to Mark 3, where we were a few weeks ago, remember, Jesus and his mother and brothers are outside standing, and they call to him, and, and the crowd says, hey, your family's outside, your mothers and your brothers and your sisters are, are seeking you, and, and he answers them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking around at those that sat at his feet, he says, whoever does the will of God, he is my mother, or she, is my brother and sister and mother. And so uh, thank you to the mothers in our church that have uh, been so kind to us. Glad to have all of you women, and we wanted to appreciate you. Uh, there's a little gift in the back on the table for you to get on your way out today. Uh, and uh, we just wanted to say thanks. So, I also didn't plan for church discipline to fall on this Sunday. I'm bad about dates and holidays and stuff, but that's, that's where we're at. So, if you want to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18, we're going to look at verses 15 through 22 this morning. Last week, we looked at Matthew 16, and uh, we saw that Jesus gave authority to the church to proclaim the gospel and to protect his name. To try and help us understand what was going on in the text, we, we quoted Uncle ben, Uncle ben from the Tobey Maguire version of Spider-Man. We said, with great power comes great responsibility. And we said, with great privilege comes great responsibility. We observed that the church holds the power of the keys, which is simply a metaphor for the good news that Jesus saves unworthy sinners who repent of their sins and confess him as Lord. It's a proper confession that opens the door into the kingdom of heaven. So the church, by belief in the gospel, has the privilege of being freed or loosed from sin and is tasked with making clear the distinction between those that have been adopted into Jesus' family and those that are bound in their sins. We said that the local church is the authority on earth that Jesus has instituted to officially affirm and give shape to my Christian life and yours. And so the, the people of God, the church, affirms our Christianity. They say, yes, Joe knows Jesus. We see his faith and his repentance of sin. Believes in Jesus. He's a, a true disciple he belongs to us or the person that doesn't have a proper confession they say we say hey you you don't know jesus yet we don't think so let's continue to read our bibles together and to have spiritual discussions to see if uh, we can figure this christianity thing out and so we affirm it and give shape to the christian life as the church and and it's the church that's been commanded and empowered to to do this task right we're uh, commanded and empowered to proclaim the gospel, that's what we, we talked about last week, but also uh, to protect the gospel, and that's the focus of this week's message. These are two functions of the church to go back to our three original questions. We asked, what is a Christian? And answered that concisely, one that has God as Father. We said, what is the church? And we said, a bunch of Christians together, and that the Christian life requires fellowship with other believers. 
And then the last two weeks we've been talking about the function of the church and kind of pointing out its authority. And so we, we looked at the authority to proclaim the word last week and we're looking at the authority to protect the word this week. The two, proclamation and protection, are actually tethered tightly together. Our faithfulness in proclaiming the message of Jesus is contingent upon our faithful protection of the gospel. What I mean is, if we allow the gospel to be supplanted or replaced by another message, then we've abandoned the faith. We don't have fellowship with Jesus. That's why Paul and other New Testament authors speak so often about false teaching and false teachers, because it's a problem. Truth of the gospel must not be diluted or falsified, and the church must protect the message of Jesus. I mean, if we fill the pews with non-Christians or wolves, if you will, they'll eat the sheep, and our churches will become powerless, and our Christianity will become cultural. I mean, some people do actually believe that you can have a, a, a flavor of Christianity without Christ. Uh, one such, per- such person is Elena Massey, whose article was featured in the opinion section, on the front page of the opinion section in the Washington Post last Sunday. Uh, it was titled, How to Take Christ Out of Christianity. She claimed that she could continue her Christian identity without any belief in God or any Christian doctrine, while remaining formally attached to and faithfully within the Episcopal Church claiming, as she says, her Episcopalian roots and tradition going all the way back to her parents and beyond. Let me state the obvious here. Someone that doesn't believe in God or Jesus, by definition, is not a Christian. Being a Christian means and must mean something. Which is why if this woman's church loves her, they'll launch a spiritual rescue plan known as church discipline. For a church to call someone like this a Christian rather than calling them to repentance is a great evil. It's, it's hateful. I mean, think of it like this. Somebody's standing on train tracks and uh, they've got their back turned and a locomotive is barreling down the rails at them and you're right next to them and you could pull them from the tracks or, or push them, which, whichever you feel. But instead of getting them off the tracks, you turn a blind eye and say nothing and allow them to, to stand there and just get crushed by the train. That's what it would be to allow sin to continue. To allow somebody that is dead in their sins to think they believe, belong to the people of God. That's, that's wicked. A person that doesn't believe in Jesus is in danger of hell. This is not a popular doctrine, but it's a true one. To an, allow an unbeliever to remain in church membership is wrong. It's hateful towards the individual, and it's hateful to others because it obscures who Christ is. It blurs the distinction between the church and the world. And the church, after all, at the end of the day, is responsible for being a display of God's glory, a picture of heaven on earth. And when non-Christians are welcomed into church membership, that picture gets really muddied. If our lives here together are not a holy depiction of our commitment to Jesus' lordship, then we confuse the world, and ourselves. Which is why we need this loving practice of church discipline. Church discipline is aimed at the spiritual rescue of individuals and at protecting the name of Jesus. So we must ask the question, how do we do it? 
We're going to learn in five little parts from Matthew 18 here that church discipline is done gently, wisely, patiently, together and with hope. Those are actually going to be my five sections. It's done gently, wisely, patiently, together and with hope. And and what I want you to, to walk away with, what I think the main idea of this text is, is that church membership is a big deal. It's important. And then the one big thing or the application that I think we can apply to our lives throughout the week is to care enough to be confronted and to confront others. Before we uh, examine the text together, let's pray. Lord Jesus, be with us now as as we hear words that are, are often hard to hear. We talk about a doctrine that is essential to our health and our flourishing, but one that is is painful to exercise. Give us understanding and patience. Help us to hear you so that we might, with one voice and one heart, be obedient to your word. Amen. So there are are actually four steps that are going to be laid out for us in these verses. And uh, the first one comes in verse 15, which says this. If your brother or sister sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Real easy. Don't sweep sin under the rug. Ignoring sin is unloving. It robs the offending person of the opportunity to repent and to be reconciled and to be ministered to by the gifts of others. Sin that is left unexposed in the dark corners of our hearts grows and festers. It's like mold. It gets out of control and it can be deadly. Also, if we in the church are not willing to confront someone else's sin, we devalue them. Christ sees them as having infinite value. He paid an infinite price for them, did he not? Why then would we shirk our responsibility to care for our brothers and sisters and allow them to uh, continue destructive behaviors and patterns? The command to go to our brother and sister in this text, it's, it's not supposed to be optional. It means when there's a, a beef between two people that you, you don't turn around and go tell somebody else, did you see what she did to me? And there will be. Sin is messy. Church is messy. We're sinners. But it means instead of going and talking about it and venting, it means we go to one another one-on-one and say, it hurt me when? Offer them the opportunity to repent and to be reconciled. And Paul agrees with this command to go in Galatians 6.1. He says this, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourselves, lest you too be tempted. He knows how uh, contagious sin is, and he knows that it'll be contentious when we confront one another, and oftentimes in those confrontations, we find ourselves sinning. He says, be careful lest you be tempted. Restore with gentleness and with care. After all, all spiritual rescue missions, all church discipline, even at this first level, should be marked with love and gentleness and aimed towards restoration. I don't want you to be fooled here, though. Being gentle doesn't mean being insincere. Sin is serious. I I think we often underestimate 
the destructive severity of sin. But, but Jesus did not, just before he gives us these guidelines, he, he says this in verse 8 of chapter 18. If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands and two feet and be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes and to be thrown into the hell of fire. Jesus knows all sin comes from the heart. His point isn't to maim yourself or to literally cut off your hands. I I probably wouldn't have any limbs left. His point is that we need to hate sin so much that we're willing to do whatever it takes to eradicate it, to kill it. John Owen says, be killing sin or it will be killing you. There's a war going on. And if you ignore it, if you ignore sin, if you don't take it seriously, you will be overcome by it. So my question here is, is do you? Is there a sin in your life that you're snuggling with instead of struggling against? I made that rhyme a little bit so you could remember it. It also gets that, my desire to be a rap artist out a little bit. Is, is there a sin that you're snuggling with that you should be struggling against? Will you repent? Sin is deadly, and this first level accountability between family members is a great weapon against it. That's why it's it's so important for this type of uh, level one church discipline to take place between us all the time. All followers of Jesus should invite correction. We should welcome it because ultimately it's going to make us more like him. Have Have you ever eaten somewhere and without knowing it, got a, a large portion of food lodged in between your teeth and had no idea. And then gone about your whole day, maybe to an important meeting and, and to other meals with friends, only to discover upon your arrival at home and looking into the mirror, oh my goodness, there is a huge piece of food lodged right in between my teeth. I mean, what's the first thing you think? Why didn't somebody tell me? I looked like an idiot. All day, how long has this been here? Don't you want to know if there's sin in your life? Don't you want to know if there's something in between your spiritual teeth so that you can correct it? Christian, care enough about Jesus' name and his glory to be confronted by your brothers and sisters. And care enough about your siblings to confront them when they slip into sin. Again, this is not vindictive, it's not evil, it's not, whoa, did you hear about what she did? It's also not silly, it's like not going to confront somebody because they didn't know all the lyrics to a Taylor Swift song, that, that's not what we're talking about here, although that borders along sin. Yeah, you know who I'm talking to. It's sincere, it's a sincere correction. It's done out of love. Jesus tells us to go in private between the two of you and to work it out with gentleness and care. This type of loving correction, it's done in your homes, over lunch. It's always done with the good of the other person in mind. Correction is never offered selfishly or to just get something off of your chest. It's not what it's about. It's about caring for the other. 
Sadly, this first level of spiritual restoration does not always work. So Jesus gives us a, a second level in verse 16. But if he does not listen, that's the brother or the sister, take one or two others along with you that the charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. This is just really smart. Two others that go along with the offended person actually act to validate the fact that there's actually sin going on here. And it's also congruous with what we see in Deuteronomy 19.15, which tells us to establish a charge with two or three witnesses. So they're going to validate that there's actually sin going on here and this other person needs to repent. It could be the case that there's not actually sin, that the person that's offended is wrong and they're going to have to turn and say, actually, brother, uh, the person that you thought you needed to restore, they're good, it's actually you, so we need, we need you to repent. So they function in that way, but, but let's assume here that the, if the person is in sin, they haven't repented, and then you take the two or three there, and what they can do is they provide two other people saying, brother, sister, we, we need you to turn from your sin. You need to turn to Jesus. There's two or more people to plead with this brother and sister that's caught in a transgression and to pray for them. We want to care enough for one another to confront one another and be confronted with gentleness and wisdom and then patience. Verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. This is third level. Circumstances will usually dictate how how the step is arrived at, but in general, we want to allow an appropriate amount of time for repentance. It's at this point we have a, a brother or sister who is knowingly sinning and refusing to repent of that sin. Church leaders at this point typically inform the body of Christ of the general nature of the sin, usually not too many details because that's not beneficial for anybody, but it's so that the whole church can pray for the individual. The whole community engages in the rescue effort by sending letters and text messages, by making phone calls, by dropping by and visiting and having conversations that are about repentance. We're calling them back to faithfulness, back into the light, out of darkness. The whole church pleads with the wayward sibling to turn from their sin and to demonstrate their love for Jesus by obeying him. It's at this point if the person still refuses to repent, the body moves to the fourth level of church discipline and together with heavy hearts remove the member. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. At first blush, this doesn't seem so bad. After all, Jesus was really nice to Gentiles and tax collectors. Does that mean that the the person we removed from us, we should be even nicer to them than we were before? Well, no. It's not, it's not. Remember, we have to, Matthew's gospel was written to a Jewish audience primarily, and so they understood Gentiles and tax collectors were the worst of the worst, and they were distinct from Jews in a very negative way. So this, this group understood that to treat someone like a Gentile or a tax collector was to treat them as one outside of the household of God. It doesn't mean to be mean, mean to them either, right? So, so how do we treat somebody that's been put out of fellowship? I think the best advice that I've read on this is that your relationship with this person has to, to change in a practical way. Um, 
And unless you're a, a spouse, you have, if you're a spouse, you're related, you have to fulfill your family obligations. But for the rest in the church, it, it means cutting off most of those usual ties so you're not going to go to the gym together or uh, you know, stop and have a cup of coffee. But when you do see them, you're having intentional and deliberate conversations about repentance and about returning to the Lord with hopes that they'll be restored, that they'll come back to Jesus. We don't want to miss the gravity of being put out of the church. It's, it's typically called excommunication. It means being barred from the fellowship of believers. Look what Paul writes about it to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 5, verses 1 through 5. He says, It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you of a kind that's not even tolerated among the pagans, for a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. This is the last step of church discipline. It's the last and drastic step of spiritual rescue. When we put someone out of the church, we are, in Paul's language, delivering them over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that they might be saved. It's to make clear to the person that they are not of Jesus' people, but of Satan's. The purpose of discipline at this point is aimed at reconciliation and restoration with God and the rest of the church. It's crucial that we do these things together and with the knowledge that we are simply making visible what's already evident in heaven. What do I mean? Second part of verse 17. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. The binding and loosing language should remind us of what we studied last week in Matthew 16, 13 through 20. It's that the authority Jesus is speaking of here that the church is going to exercise is the same authority that's mentioned there. Notice the whole church is doing the binding and the loosing. When we confront a sinner that will not repent, and we say, you're bound in your sin, we're saying that your life is exhibiting that you don't know Jesus. And heaven has already made that judgment. So when the church says that, it's reflective of what's already happened in heaven. God knows that that person's still bound in their sin, and now the church is manifesting that. They're making it clear. Or when we uh, confront a, a sinner and the sinner repents and returns to the fellowship, we say, you're loosed from your sin. Heaven already knows that the sinner's heart has been changed, that they've returned to the Lord, and we're just making evident what's gone on in heaven down here on earth. Loosed from your sin. Verse 19. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything, they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. This, this verse is really misunderstood a whole lot of the time, right? Usually when like two of us show up to a prayer meeting, the, the words often cross someone's lips, where two or more are gathered, he's in our midst. And that's true. It's true. 
It's not what the verse means here because it doesn't really have anything to do with prayer meetings. I mean, even if it's just one of us praying, Jesus is in our midst. Remember, he tells us in Matthew 28, Lo, I am with you always. So he's there. I think it's re- at this point we remember context is king. Context helps us to understand and rightly interpret those difficult passages of Scripture. Jesus has been speaking of pursuing sinners, of forgiveness, and about church discipline. With these themes in mind, we can see that Jesus is saying, whenever the church is pursuing and is involved in the reconciliation process with someone who has refused to repent, they can be assured that God's blessing is with them in their efforts. In other words, as the church renders judicial decisions on matters of right and wrong that are based on the truth of God's word, they should be confident that they are doing the right thing and that Christ himself is right there with them. In other words, Jesus stands on the side of the church in this dispute. He stands with those that are establishing the charges so that the church isn't splintered, so that the church can be unified in this discipline process so that it doesn't become, well, you know, the, the elders just have a vendetta against me. Or, or Sue and Josie, they're, the, Josie, I don't know that that's the name. Sue and Joe, they're just out to get me. And then rallying support. No, it, it means everybody telling this person, clearly you are in sin. It's, we are of one mind, one heart, one accord. The unity of the church throughout the process is important, and Jesus wants everybody to know which side he's on. He's on the side of the church because that's the person or the entity to whom he's given authority to exercise the keys, to bind and to loose, to open up the door of heaven and say, yes, you belong, or to lock the door in heaven and say, no, your confession is wrong, your life has bearing bad fruit, you do not know Jesus, you are of the world, you are not of the kingdom of God. Which points us to that, that main idea, right? Belonging to a church. Church membership is a big deal. It matters. It means that together we represent Jesus. And together, true disciples, as the local church, exercise authority to assess professions of faith and to act accordingly. I love what Jonathan Lehman writes here. Jesus authorizes the local church to use the keys of the kingdom to stand in front of a confessor, which is, is somebody that is claiming to be a Christian, to consider the potential Christian's confession, to consider their life, and to announce an official judgment on heaven's behalf. The church asks, is this a right confession? Is this a true confessor? Are they really a Christian? In short, the local church has heaven's authority for declaring who does and who does not represent Jesus' name on earth. Jesus has not authorized individual people to suddenly decide that they're Christians and then to stand before the nations and to declare that they represent Jesus. No, this is the role he's given to the church. People now, as in Peter's day, need the church's affirmation. People in Jerusalem, after hearing Peter preach the gospel, didn't go, I guess we're all Christians. No, they said, what must we do to be saved? And Peter replied, turn from your sins, repent and be baptized. And we know that baptism is the gateway into church membership as bore out through the rest of Acts and the New Testament. The church affirms or denies someone's Christianity. Do want to have a caveat here. We should remember that the local church's power is only declaratory. A church does not make somebody 
a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. But it has the responsibility for declaring who does and who does not belong to the kingdom. I think that's an important distinction. But it doesn't detract from our point that church membership is a crucial thing. It's a big deal. Together, we exercise a unique authority given by Christ. And the purpose of this gospel authority is to protect the name and the message of Jesus by keeping the church pure so that we might display God's glory to the nations and to one another. Only when we are faithful in protecting the gospel message are we able to proclaim that message faithfully. Our lives in community together put flesh on our words. If our churches do not display God's glory and look of heaven, the gospel will not seem like good news. Jesus will not appear beautiful. Jesus will be made less of if we neglect the pursuit of holiness in favor of the pursuit of comfort. It's uncomfortable to do church discipline. We need to care enough about God's glory, Jesus' beauty, and one another's holiness to confront the sin of others and be confronted ourselves. We practice this church discipline, this spiritual rescue effort, with the aim of restoring individuals that have wandered and protecting the name of Jesus. The process is carried out deliberately with gentleness, wisdom, patience, unity, and with hope. Notice our instruction for spiritual rescue is sandwiched between two parables. Let's read the first together. It starts in verse 12. Jesus says, What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains to go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Little ones there is a reference to children at the beginning of the chapter, which are those that inherit the kingdom of heaven. God does not want his children to become unrepentant and to walk away. He doesn't want those that have had access to the gospel to deny him and to perish. It comes right before the section that we've been studying with us. And do you see what it shows us? So that God pursues his sheep, that God pursues you. He doesn't let you wander into sin uninterrupted. Not only that, God pursues you with his people. The church pursues you. So that we sheep might help keep watch on one another. That we might keep one another close to the good shepherd and safe from wolves. My former pastor, I love, he pointed out a, a problem here. He says, the problem is, is that straying sheep never want to be pursued. They, they flip you the middle hoof and continue on their way. It's true though, isn't it? Often instead of welcoming loving correction as a normal part of our growth and discipleship, we resent it. I think marriage has shown me that more than anything hate to admit I'm wrong when I, to my wife. Church must be committed to doing the hard work of pursuing. We must care enough about one another to confront and be confronted. True disciples, church members, should say, I want this for others and I want this for myself. 
No one is ever so lost that they cannot be restored to the flock by the hand of the good shepherd. Friends, we need only to bleat out for Jesus to save us. He'll hear the cry. He'll come. And he'll restore us. That's what this is all about. Anyway, church discipline is aimed at the spiritual rescue of individuals and protecting the name of Jesus. It's never done apart from hope. And and oddly enough, sometimes it works. But what do we do if it works? Which is sort of Peter's question in verses 21 and 22. Then Peter came up to Jesus and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I don't say to you seven times, but 77 times. The answer is we forgive. We welcome them back into fellowship once true repentance is evident. I think sometimes true repentance is clear than others, right? If we've disciplined a, a member for abandoning his family and his wife, and that's the sin that he needs to repent of, and he comes back, moves back in with his family, that's a pretty clear sign of repentance. So we, we welcome him back in. That's more clear than the businessman who has a pattern of making shady deals and lying. Less clear, so we, their repentance, it might take some more time to observe before we restore them to our fellowship. The point here, though, is that we need to be ready and willing to forgive. I also love Peter is actually being pretty generous here. He assumes forgiveness and he asks Jesus, how often should we forgive? Up to seven times? Most of the rabbis of the day went up to three times in matters of how often you should forgive somebody. So Peter's being much more benevolent than the three strikes and you're out system. But Jesus says 70 times seven. His point here is not an actual number. If you've got some kind of ledger and you're like, all right, that's 52 times I've forgiven them. They've got this many more. I only have to forgive them this many more times and then no more forgiveness. It's not the point. The point is to forgive without keeping count. Forgive without limits. We launch the spiritual rescue plan of church discipline in order to proclaim Jesus and to protect the name of Jesus. When sinners go through this process and are restored to the community of saints, they picture the gospel. The person that turns from their sin towards Jesus models the good news as if they, as they transfer their faith from themselves to Jesus. When we're united to Jesus by faith, his, his death it becomes our death. His life becomes our life. Those that have experienced the joy of knowing Jesus are big forgivers because they've been really, really forgiven. Which is why I think Jesus hits Petey with this parable here. Look at verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. In contemporary terms, a gajillion, bajillion dollars. He owned him a ton of money, couldn't pay the debt. Verse 25. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and his children and all that he had in payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him his debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, think ten bucks. 
And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me. I will pay you. That should sound a little familiar. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. His master summoned him and said, You wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay the debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Sounds also similar to the Lord's Prayer, right? Forgive us as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. Forgive us as we forgive our debtors. Willingness to forgive is evidence that you have been forgiven. And we all need forgiven. All men have sinned and tried to rule over themselves rather than submitting to the rule of God. And as a result, evil has infected everything, ushering in suffering and death and tears. The offense of our sin against God is infinite, like a gazillion dollar debt unpayable cannot restore ourselves to right relationship with god we owe more than we can pay to the master of all things yet god out of his generosity in accord with his great wisdom and his wonderful character grants forgiveness to those that will accept it by submitting to jesus lordship our god does more than that though since we're thinking in financial terms He doesn't just take us out of the red, but he puts us in the black. For those that repent of their sins and believe in Jesus, he not only forgives you the unpayable debt, but he also adopts you into his family and places infinite riches into your account. He sees you like he sees Jesus. What God is this? that dies in your place so that you get what he deserves while he takes what you deserve. A good God. Forgiveness is evidenced in a willingness to forgive. Those that have been forgiven for their sins stand ready to lovingly forgive and be reconciled to their wayward brothers and sisters. Non-Christian, I speak to you this morning. I want you to know forgiveness is available to you. No one here is perfect. Most of us are broken. We've all just come to Jesus with the empty hands of faith. And His grace has been sufficient. It can be sufficient for you too. You are not without hope. You need only follow Him. For the Christian in rebellion this morning, let this message be a warning to you and an invitation to come back home, to turn from your sin. Brothers and sisters, be a bunch of forgiven sinners that are big forgivers. 
the local church is the authority on earth that Jesus has instituted to officially affirm and give shape to my Christian life and yours. Together we have been commanded and empowered to proclaim the gospel to protect the name of Jesus. This responsibility requires the practice of church discipline which is aimed at the rescue of individuals and the protecting of the name of Jesus. It's a vital way that we care for one another. It's why church membership is vital. It's why church membership is a big deal. So I ask you, what fellowship of believers is holding you accountable? Who's caring for you? Who are you caring for? What authority is affirming and giving shape to your Christian life? The privilege of knowing God comes with responsibility of making God known by your participation in the people of God, the church. With great power and privilege comes great responsibility. That mnemonic device is going to go with you forever anytime you see Spider-Man or comic books now. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you're good and that you love us, a broken people. That only you can make us whole. That your grace is made perfect in weakness and it's in our sufferings, it's in uh, the times when we come to the end of ourselves that we see our desperate condition and our desperate need for you. It's there in the hard places that we recognize we have a debt that we cannot pay. And that your grace is marvelous. It's there when we raise the empty hands of faith to you. That you take us by the hand. Say, my precious child, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. All that I have is yours. Lord, thank you for loving us like this. Your love is steadfast and it endures forever. Hallelujah. And amen.